Hello everyone and welcome to Fan Fuel episode 11. My name is Alex Harrington. I'm joined by Nathan Ball and I'd like to welcome our new co-host Colton Cranmore. You heard him on episode 6, the Cranmore edition. Well now it's the Cranmore edition because we're adding him to the team. Uh, this week let's go ahead and start with a Martinsville recap guys. What is it with NASCAR and bringing rain? T- well personally I think that they're going to stop raining once they get the rain tires in. Like, it's going to stop raining ever since they do. I, I could see that happening. They bring thousands of tires to to a racetrack like Martinsville, and it's damp enough. Um, uh, or I should say the banking is short enough that they could race on a damp track, and uh, we just scare the rain away with the rain tires. I, I could see that happening. It's 2020 all over again with the rain. Yeah, it it started out pretty bad last year with the Daytona 500, and we got it again this year with the Daytona 500. Um, and yeah, like you said, it's starting out like like 2020 did. And I don't know what to say other than this is something that's been happening for a while. I remember the last win in the Cup Series that Dale Jr. had was a rain shortened event at phoenix if i remember correctly so heck nascar can even bring rain to the desert yeah i was even living uh vegas in early 2020 before covid shut everything down and i was super hoping on going to the race and then looked at the forecast and even vegas got rained out yeah and it it just seems to be something i don't know if mother nature's not a fan of the the playoff system or what because because uh, it, it's really only happened in the last few years that I can remember. And that might just be looking back with rose-colored glasses. But I, I don't know. It, it seems like it's it's a problem that we keep ramping up year after year. But I'm glad NASCAR is going to go into rain tire technology with Goodyear. And a lot of people were saying a lot of bad stuff about it. But I think it, it'll be interesting since we seem to be going more of an entertainment style than pure racing um anyways yeah i love the idea of rain tires because i see a lot of people in nascar saying oh well, we don't like rain racing it's not real racing you're just staying on the track and personally i think those people have probably never seen a race in another series in the rain which is why they're saying that so i don't understand the dislike for rain tires yeah i i agree completely um People who say it's not real racing will also say that road course racing ain't real racing for the stock cars. Um, I think it's a different discipline. It's a it's another chance for drivers to show this kind of skill that they do have. Um, and they might say it's not real racing just because Chase Elliott is, might not lead every lap. You know, I mean, who knows with some of these fans, but I'm, I'm super excited for it. I wish they would have done this 10 years ago. Yeah, well, you know, they had the Terry Lamont test in the 90s, and for whatever reason, they decided not to. Uh, my biggest thing is, who is going to be good at it, right? Because you've got very few guys that come from a background in road racing who have seen these rain races. And even the Xfinity races, there's only been a few, like a handful, that have had wet weather in them. Um, so it, it would be interesting to see who's going to be good just on a road course once we get the chance to to have the rain tires there. But when you throw it on an oval, albeit these are all going to be flat ovals, I'm assuming they'll be able to use them at Richmond, at Martinsville, um, maybe Phoenix and New Hampshire. I'm not sure about any other places that might be able to use them. but 
who are going to be the guys that can only turn left in the rain? I mean, is it going to be the guys that race dirt because those tracks are changing conditions all the time? Or is it just going to be the guys that race in road courses well? Like, I, how do we gauge oh, this at such a known I'm, I'm just going to go out there with the bold prediction before we even get a rain race and say Truex because he seems to be the best at number one, staying smooth and not quote unquote burning up the rear tires as much as another driver would. Because if you look at the high horsepower tracks, he's always done well there in the last few years. And he just won the last 750 race too. So. He won a dirt race in his first try and all that kind of stuff. It makes me think that people kind of overlook him because he's not flashy when it comes to car control, but he definitely has it. He just doesn't use it. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Truex would be a good one. Um, I look at some of the dirt guys, um, Stenhouse and Bell come to mind because um, I, I just feel like in the rain, they'd be able to slide in a little bit harder and control that slide a little bit. Granted, the rain is quite a bit different than you know, racing on a slick dirt track. Um, I just feel like they'd have that, that finesse with the wheel and with the throttle to get it done. Um, I also look at guys, uh, like Nathan said, that, that don't burn up the tires as quick, that are really good at saving equipment. Um, guys like Truex, um, even Kyle Busch to some extent, um, who have been around a little bit and know how to save their stuff and treat it like there's an egg under the throttle. Um, it'll definitely be interesting to see. Yeah, well, uh, with the last comment that you said, I think with the 550 horsepower package, it's basically just been full throttle and we haven't really seen much throttle control. So there might be a, a whole gap of talent in a couple of the guys that have just been recent to the Cup Series. So I could see this being beneficial to the older guys and the guys that grew up driving prolate models and stuff like that. So... I'll have to agree with most of you guys' answer. I really didn't know, and that's why I brought the um, question up um, about what to think. Uh, my biggest thing is we look at these race tracks. They're all flat and stuff, and I'm concerned a little bit about puddling like we saw at the Roval, uh, but then they say we're going to only do it on a damp track, so it's not going to be raining. Most of the rain should have washed off. Maybe NASCAR dries the track a little bit. The biggest thing for me, if we do go to rain tires, we cannot have a caution that NASCAR throws to say, okay, it's time to put on drives or, okay, it's time to put on wets. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Feel like, you know, they're the best in the business. They can figure it out. Yeah, I absolutely hate the idea of, hey, look, it's raining. We need to put on wets right now. We need a caution for them. I think that I feel like part of the thing that rain racing that makes it fun is knowing when to change your tires. Like, say, if you're on full wets to go to intermediates or slicks or whenever you're on slicks to go to wets and vice versa. I think that part of the strategy is knowing when to nail that change. And I think that the people that can change it at the right time are the ones that are better at it. And if you throw a mandatory caution for it, it pretty much eliminates any sort of varying strategy that the drivers might have at that point. It takes away half of what makes rain racing good in the first place. And I don't doubt that they wouldn't do that just because that's how I feel about stage racing in general, that it takes away a lot of strategy from racing. So I don't think that they wouldn't throw that caution, and that's what frustrates me. But at the end of the day, NASCAR is going to do what NASCAR is going to do. And because the three of us love the sport, we're just going to watch it anyway. So it is it is what it is. Um, but on to this weekend, you guys talk about Truex, and you're talking about how he's got good throttle control, he's good at short tracks now. 
I I want to move on to Sunday's race um, because he has basically dominated short track racing in the last few seasons, seemingly out of nowhere. Um, and he did that at the end of the race on Sunday where nobody could catch him. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, really, with Truex, if you look at the statistics, he's led what? He's got to have led close to 900 laps in the past three or four Martinsville races. And ever since, say, um, the implementation of data sharing, especially, I think that's sort of where he's got an edge and he's never looked back. I think that's impressive to me because that's the only thing that I can really attribute to how he got that advantage because other drivers have pointed to saying, hey, our advantage is on because of the data sharing making everything public. And What's weird about it is that whatever Truex was able to do, nobody else seems to be able to copy it. It's almost like he gains the advantage but doesn't seem to lose it. So it makes me wonder as to right. what what exactly is going on there because he went from pretty much being nowhere on most short tracks to being – I mean he led, what, almost a 1,000 laps in the last eight Richmond races too. So I don't really know how to explain it. Yeah. I, I would agree with the data sharing. Um, and I don't know if it isn't more that he just kind of got the monkey off his back with that first short court, short track win. And ever since then hasn't been, you know, thinking about the jinx or whatever you want to call it as the O for 80 that he had. Um, I think that he's for the most part kind of always had that car control at the short tracks, um, but always might not have been an equipment to show it off. Um, even when he got to, to furniture row, he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't lights out on the short tracks, but he wasn't, you know, last place every week either. Um, so I think the data sharing did have a little bit to do with that, where he could see kind of where other guys are picking up advantages on him. Um, but I think most of it's just he's a he's a damn good wheel man. Um, oh, for sure. Getting that, yeah, getting that first short track win kind of gave him the confidence to go out and just completely kick ass. Yeah, I just found it so eye opening that. In the first 15 years of his career, he'd only led 20 laps at Martinsville until now. And it's like, man, it's just, it's, it's night and day. I don't think I would have expected this. If he told me this 10 years ago, I probably would have laughed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. I, I don't know. He just, he was in mediocre equipment at MWR. I mean, let's not call it what it was, wasn't. And it was a good car because it, it wasn't. He had glimpses of hope. He had to win at Dover. Um, with DI and that was mediocre equipment too. So he'd been just kind of one of those field fillers for me, kind of like a, um, a Michael McDowell or someone who's always just kind of been there, but never really done anything. Uh, I, I know Michael McDowell won the 500, but you know, prior to that, I mean, he just kind of was there. Uh, and for someone who was one, two at the time, Bush series, championships that's not really something you think about um because you see guys who did that like dale jr go out and win 30 something races and and have an illustrious career and then all of a sudden he flips the switch from nowhere it's it seems and and furniture row and he go out and win the championship and now he's just been a constant talk of probably one of the top five drivers in the sport for the last three years and it, it's very interesting to watch looking from the outside in uh, because if you were to tell me in 2011 that 
Martin Truex Jr. had won a championship and went on a 5-11 to win-loss streak at short tracks uh, in 2021, I'd, I'd literally look at you and laugh uh, because there's no way that that, that guy wasn't going to be washed up and out of the sport by then. So it's a big surprise, and it's good because he's one of those guys that's kind of a blue-collar guy at heart um, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I don't understand the fans' dislike for him personally because I know people are like, oh, you know, he, he whines too much. But if you look at any radio sound bites, he doesn't do it any more than any other driver does. So is it because he drives a Toyota maybe? That's the only thing I can think of other than that. But, I mean, he drives – he drives clean. He respects a lot of the other drivers when they don't necessarily do the same back. So, you know, I hear so many fans saying that we want clean drivers and all that kind of stuff. And we have one right here. It's just that no one seems to latch on them. Yeah. I don't know. When it comes to NASCAR fans, it's wishy-washy with everything. So, I mean, you could just chop that up to just being something that, you know, people have to have something to complain about these days. It seems, um, but the race itself, everyone was claiming it to be extremely great and the best race of the season, this, that, and the other. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I thought it was fantastic until that big pileup that took out about 15 cars. It seemed like that wreck happened, and to me, the race just stagnated in entertainment value. And it wasn't very good until the very end when I got my hopes up uh, for Trex being chased down, which didn't happen. And it just wound up being uh, a bit boring of a finish to me. I, I know that a finish doesn't necessarily constitute a bad race, but that race was fantastic, to, in, in my opinion, up until that big pileup. What did you guys think about the overall arc of the race, and did that crash specifically have anything to change your mind? Oh, man. Well, first of all, I think it was a good race. Um I wasn't like necessarily not expecting the finish. I knew that Truex had the car, so once he got the lead, it was pretty much as most Truex wins are. Once he gets the lead, it's pretty much a done deal. But I do wish I think Blaney being taken out with that penalty was probably the biggest thing that affected the race because he was probably the only car that had anything for Truex on a long run. You know, Elliott was there; he just couldn't he couldn't really get up to him, so. I think had Blaney not had that penalty, he probably would have been able to at least fight for it with Truex. I don't know if his car was better or worse at the end of the race because he did end up in 11th after all that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure. He probably had the best car early in the race. So I think that if you want to go back and see it, I think it definitely would have been a fight. And I think that's the only thing that kind of prevented it from being an all-time classic finish. Yeah, I, I'm going to disagree with Alex. I thought that the race was great even without that big wreck. I mean, granted, that big wreck, I mean, it, it took out quite a bit of names that were at least providing some bit of entertainment in the back of the pack. Um, you look at, like, the Suarez-Byron, you know, you play what could have been with that little rivalry that was going on. Um, but I thought even that, that last green flag run was, I mean, fantastic. I wish the caution one that came out with, you know, the 50 to go or 40 to go, whichever it was. Um, first off, because that's when Blaney got his penalty, and I'm a huge Blaney fan. Um, but I really like long runs at tracks. I like seeing the guys that can save their equipment, um, see how the strategy plays out. Um, and Truex only took the lead with, I think, 15 to go, which is, I mean, that's a little over five minutes when you're talking about laps at Martinsville. So it wasn't like he was just marching away with it. 
Um, but I thought, I mean, I thought it was great seeing guys try to get past Hamlin for five, six laps apiece. Um, that really kind of showed off the talent that Hamlin has as a veteran um, with holding guys behind him and slowing him up a little bit. Um, I thought it was a great race all around, um, even though my di- my guy did get kind of removed from the conversation with a penalty there. Um, I really like finishes like that that, you know, don't have to have all of this, this jam-packed full of cars at the front to be a good race. Um, I like seeing strategy play out. And we saw that from Truex. You know, he was kind of a, a late top 10 mid-pack car for most of the race and then kind of came on at the end. Um, so I was I was really impressed with that. Oh, yeah. That was definitely impressive to me. I thought that, like you said about Hamlin being able to keep the guys behind him and all that, I was impressed at that. It took it took them a lot longer to get by him than you would think it would because you saw that once they got by him, they pretty much dispatched him. He, Truex was, what, three seconds clear by the time he took the checkered flag. So the more I think of it, the more I'm thinking, you know, how in the world was Hamlin able to keep him behind for that long if his car was that much slower? Right, right, absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of strategies like that. Um, one of the things I keep commenting on Twitter, the fans that, you know, seem to want a three-wide finish, you know, every single week, like, why don't we just throw a mandatory caution with three to go and just make it every every race have a two-lap restart? Um, and NASCAR's probably so listening to that, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't they, say anything. I would not doubt they haven't looked into that. Um, they probably have us wired. That came within the next 10 years, to be honest with you. Um, but no, a, a good long stretch at the end every once in a while ain't ain't, ain't bad. And I, I kind of like seeing that old classic kind of racing where you'd have these super long green flag runs. Yeah, Well, I don't disagree with you there, Colton. But for me, I guess I had more to lose, I don't know, with Truex being out front. I have a great disdain for him for whatever reason. So I was just like, really, another Martin Truex Jr. win, and he's going to walk away from the field. Denny doesn't have anything for him. And then because of that big crash that happened that took out all those guys, well, we were focusing on the broadcast on more than just a leader all race long, but they didn't have anything really to focus on after that because there were so many of those battles that just got axed because of what was happening. And, and I think it was, for me, just... Really, this is what I'm going to have to watch for the last 15 or so laps because nothing else is happening on track. So I think for me, the race would have been a lot better had we still had more cars on track and Fox could have focused on something that wasn't that 19 car. And and that's probably just personal disdain for me. Um, but other guys that had wonderful races, uh, especially prior to that, that caution we're talking about, um, specifically Daniel Suarez, he moved back to the rear multiple times and moved through the field multiple times. Um, this is the second of two short tracks. I'm going to consider the, the dirt track, uh, a short track as well. And we've got rich Richmond coming up. I mean, they did great. Um, these past two weeks, are you looking at track house as being a threat for a top 10 finish at Richmond? Oh man. I definitely think they are. It just depends on how Richmond plays out because Richmond's usually one of those tracks where car strength really, really plays into everything because it's one of the tracks where discipline matters. There's not really much a driver can do to muscle their way through. 
on a long green run there like you can at, say, Martinsville or a dirt track. So I think – I don't know if they're going to be as good as they were the last few weeks at Richmond, but if you take them to Bristol in the fall, I think they'll probably be really good because that sort of gives a chance for the driver to sort of carry the car, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, um, I think what Suarez has done the last two weeks and even uh, a little bit prior to that has shown um, it's shown two things. It's that one track house is here to play. They're not just here to collect a paycheck, um, kind of like the Rick Wares and the front row racing. Um, they don't just want a car out there. They want to compete, um, which I love that about Justin Marks. Um, he's, I think he was a partner with Kyle Larson for a while in the world outlaws, um, with the sprint car team. So he knows what it takes to get it done and to land in victory lane. Um, but I also think this shows how much Daniel Suarez has kind of matured and come into his own as a driver. Um, you look at his first three seasons, the first two with JGR, and he really didn't do much. Sure, he'd lead a couple laps here and maybe grab a top ten here. Um, but, I mean, this just goes to prove that you can't judge these rookies on their first two seasons like so many fans are quick to do. Um, not every rookie is going to come out and grab a win in their first two seasons. Hell, Chase Elliott didn't. And so I think that's something we kind of need to keep in the back of our mind here is that Suarez has the experience now where he knows what it takes to get to the end of the race. And now that he's kind of got equipment and a team behind him that's going to push him towards that, we might be seeing Daniel Suarez really compete for some wins here before too long. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I just think that, like you said, a lot of people are very quick to judge based on the first few years and good equipment. But it seems like NASCAR is sort of a sport where there aren't as many, you know, guys that are hot right out of the gate compared to other racing it's a lot more common in F1 or IndyCar to immediately win. And it was here probably 20 years ago, but now it's harder to do so. So I think that with him coming in at a disadvantage, of course it's going to be hard. So I think fans don't really understand how to temper expectations. Yeah. And you know, Suarez is a special case. So you got a little bit uh, more than just him. But he was thrown into a car that he wasn't supposed to be into. He had at least another year, maybe two in Xfinity, that that he was probably going to do with Joe Gibbs before he goes in a cup. And he's thrown into a car at Gibbs that he's not ready for. And like Colton said, he's matured now. We won't talk about the Haas season because I I don't want to really get into that. I feel like he should have been given a second chance, but obviously. Oh, definitely. It's worked out in his favor um, because I think the biggest thing when it comes to Joe Gibbs racing, if your name is not Kyle Busch or Denny Hamlin, it's probably not that great of a place to work for. And you can see that with the way that they've just gotten rid of Joey Logano and now Eric Jones just for seemingly no reason. And I don't know if the fit there was as good as it is to be at Trackhouse with a team that's built around you and a part owner who's somewhat in a similar culture. Um, now, I know Pitbull's obviously not Mexican, but um, having a Hispanic person also in there, an entertainer that's also in there with a businessman that's aggressive like Justin Marks, um, they're building that team around Daniel Suarez, and that's really Daniel Suarez racing, whereas Joe Gibbs racing was, at the time, Kyle Busch Motorsports, you know, Um 
if you're not one of those two big names, you're not going to get the time of day. You're not going to get the equipment. We see it in all these big four-car teams. I mean, people need to give credit where credit is due. The man wheeled the hell out of the 96 car that was not a full-time team and could not get more than a 30th place finish on the regular to a, I want to say it was a 26th in points standings finish. So, um, he's, he's a guy that everybody needs to, to give some credit for. And I I can't wait to see how far they go, uh, just this season. Uh, I wouldn't say that a playoff spot is out of the question. If he gets a lucky win, uh, I doubt they'll get there by points, but another person that, um, Oh, wait, on the topic of, yeah, on the topic of Suarez, I think part of the reason why Joe Gibbs is so quick to cut those guys is I think they're sort of in a different philosophy than fans are. They're sort of in quote-unquote win-now mode. Like They usually go out, they'll hire older drivers like they did with Kenseth and Truex, and they want immediate results. Like They're not here to, to win races five years from now. They're here to win races immediately. I think obviously their strategy was clearly different than what Suarez was needing. And I think now it's good that Suarez has gone to a team that has the building philosophy that he's looking for. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, when you look um, at the, let's, let's even throw Logano in there, the three young drivers that they've hired within the last 15 years. Um, Suarez was on a Carl Edwards retired abruptly in December and so they didn't really have time to go out and hunt for another older guy. Um, when uh, Eric Jones came in, they kind of they kind of muscled Kenseth out. Um, but I think that was just because there were maybe rumors that Jones was going to sign somewhere else or leave TRD, and Toyota didn't want that. And so Gibbs kind of had their hand almost forced into that with how good Jones is doing in the trucks and Xfinity. Um, and even you go back to Logano, Stewart kind of he had rumors of starting his own team. But up until early to mid-2008, that wasn't a for-sure thing. And by the time Stewart had already said he was leaving, you know, again, Gibbs didn't really have time to go out and hunt for these other guys like he did with Truex and with Kenseth. Um, So I think that's a great point, Nate, that their philosophy is more the win now, and that's why they kind of usually hire the more established drivers. Oh, yeah. They're almost like Ferrari with F1. They're like, we we want veterans. We want them right now. We want immediate results, and obviously – that's probably why they're so impatient. Yeah, well, the good thing is is they've got a sister team now with Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan coming up with 23-11. And that's going to give them an area for their development drivers to go uh, prior to getting to JGR. Uh, maybe this gives them a place to earn a spot in the big club after they leave Xfinity. And they're... Their current driver, uh, Bubba Wallace, I doubt he'll make that leap um, like I'm talking about. Uh, but we know that they're trying to get more um, charters and get more cars and stuff. Um, so particularly we could see someone else come up like a Harrison Burton or whatnot. Uh, but Bubba himself, he led a lot. Uh, I think he led 23 laps uh, at Martinsville. And that was something that I don't think a lot of people saw coming. But this was another showing of something that's happened with this team um, where they put themselves in a good situation, but it just didn't work out. Uh, So I'm looking forward to them uh, going forward this year as well, because if they can get the mistakes behind them, it seems that 
Bubba's got what it takes to get those top 10 finishes as well. Yeah, and I think if you look at Bubba this season, um, it's not that he hasn't been performing because he's certainly been in the top 10, you know, almost every week. Um, he's just had some some terrible luck with like at Daytona. Um, and, and maybe part of that's just experience, not having the equipment to actually run with those guys. He doesn't quite know what to do with it. Um, but I mean, you look at like Bristol, like that really wasn't all his fault either. Um, so he's, he's had some bad luck, but I agree with you. I think, I think Bubba's starting to figure it out with that 23, 11 team. Um, they might be one to watch for the second half of the year. Yeah. I'm just curious as to whether or not, I think he's doing well. I'm just, I, I don't want to be a downer or anything about the crew chief situation, but if, whenever they figure out how to stop losing track position, every green flag pit cycle, then they're going to be a problem just because We've gone through that with the same crew chief as Hamlin fans, and I feel like that's that's going to be a huge problem if they don't fix it going forward. Well, I mean, this year is kind of a lame duck year for them, in my opinion. Of right. course, they want to go out and win, but they're testing their limits. And, yeah, they've had a lot of bad luck. Yeah, they lost a lot of stuff on pit road, but you've got the 95 LFR team as the 23-11 team, and he's already overperforming that car. And, oh, by the way, he is also the number one passer on 550 horsepower tracks. So he knows what mm -hmm. he's doing, and I think that's a good look for them for the future. Um, Trackhouse mm -hmm. showed up, and they're doing what they can do right now. But it seems like 23-11 is going – is working through those kinks, and once they do, they're going to be a threat as well. They're right. Really my worry for me. Yeah, my worry is just like I said, the Wheeler strategy more than anything, because I feel like a lot of I wonder if that efficiency of the passer comes from he passes a lot of cars because he loses them all on pit road. Because every yeah. pit cycle they do on a mile and a half, they stay out needlessly longer than everybody else, and everyone else is just able to undercut them and get a few spots on them. Like they're they're never they're never really early to pit road and they lose so many spots because of that. And we've gone through that like 2018, obviously. And I, I feel like I don't get the logic. I know it's a growing year, but I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. see why they keep doing something over and over if they know it doesn't work. And I'm wondering with the ownership with Denny being part owner, yeah. um, if he won't step in at some point, and kind of set the team straight and say, hey, you guys are doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. From a competition standpoint, um, we need to fix it. And whether that be personnel changes, um, whether that be um, just just a really hard conversation with the team, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see that. Um, and also, I mean, we've, we've got to remember, they're still a brand new team. They're still trying to work out all the kinks, like you mentioned. Um and, and like you said, with the passing, um, we still see them run in the top 10 fairly frequently. And so that would make sense that they're making up most of that ground on pit road. Um, I mean, I think now that Bubba's got decent equipment, he's, he's, he kind of knows what to do with it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm just hoping that by next year they'll have everything kind of sorted out to where I'm, I don't have to worry about the strategy being the thing that holds them back because obviously – when Wheeler was was um, 
was sort of pushed out the door by TRD, actually, when, in 2018. They approached Hamlin at Watkins Glen, and they said, look, we want a cruise ship change. You're not performing well enough. And he fought this change for, I don't know how long, for like months on end. In the middle of the chase, he's like, yeah, you, you've, you're not doing well enough. We're giving you a new cruise ship, whether you like it or not. And that's how Chris Gatehart came along. So I feel like it's going to be difficult to persuade Hamlin to make those personnel changes, but but he kind if of this keep, if this keeps happening, then yeah, because I I don't understand what what goes on with the strategy because they can clearly build a good car. I just don't. Even the DBC guys were talking about it. They're like, why? They're like, tell this guy to to short pit, and they're like, no one really knows why why they why he does this strategy that never works over and over and over again because it's sort of a matter of just finding the weak spot and improving it rather than just keep doing yep. it over and over. Yeah, absolutely. The definition of insanity is trying the same thing and expecting different results. Um but I'm I'm wondering if with Hamlin's in a different role than he was when he was the driver on this end. Um, now he's he's kind of a personnel for that team, and especially when you look at Michael Jordan, like he likes winners. There, Michael Jordan doesn't like to lose, and so I think at some point they're going to step in and say, "Okay, well, this isn't going the way we want." Um, you know, and TRD may may step in a little bit and say, "Here, here's kind of what we want." Um, I just think with the with the change of roles that Hamlin has now, he's probably going to step up at some point and say, "Look, this isn't working. Whatever we're doing, um, we need to fix this." Yeah, and I hope he does, um, because that, that that to me is the only thing that's holding the team back. And I love Wheels. He he got Hamlin his first Daytona five hundred, but he he basically assassinated every race after that. That's why he got removed from the role. And he seems to be doing that with the twenty three car and it's frustrating as someone who wants Bubba to do the good because he's driving for my favorite driver and Michael Jordan's in the sport now who could bring a whole new fan base if Michael Jordan's car does good. So we'll have to see what happens the rest of this year and with the next-gen car. I think they are heading the right direction, but we've, you know, we've got this one big gripe that I think everyone can agree on. Um, but moving to Saturday's race, uh, kind of an unorthodox order to do Cup first. Uh, Xfinity, they uh, didn't actually run on Saturday. Uh, they ran on Sunday. Of course, they were supposed to run Friday night. They ran a few laps and then resumed during the daytime. It seemed to shift the leaderboard a bit. Uh, we had some different battles between Friday night and Sunday. But the biggest story to come out in Xfinity this weekend was Josh Berry, the JRM late model driver, getting his first win in a national series. Uh, what were your guys' thoughts on that? Because, I mean... It's it's almost like a Cinderella story in real life. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge late model guy, as you guys will find out once racing starts up here. Um, I follow every class of late models y'all could imagine. You could name a driver from anywhere in the country, and I'd I'd be able to say at least something about him. Um, so seeing Josh Berry come up and win that was that was big for me. I was jumping down, jumping up and down off the couch, damn near spilling a beer. When he took the lead over Ty Gibbs there kind of towards the end. Um, so I thought that was great. 
Yeah, I'd agree too. I think the reason I was rooting for him at the end there was, uh, you know, obviously it's cool to see younger drivers win like Ty Gibbs, but I think that when you compare Barry to them, that win was like, that might be his one and only chance to get a win before he's out of that car. And he had to win that race because if not for that win, who knows what happens to his career. You know, that, that pretty much opened up a whole new world of opportunities for him. Yeah, and a lot of people never heard of the guy before this year, uh, but he's raced the 88 car, uh, specifically at Richmond a couple of times in uh, Nationwide. I'm not sure if he drove in the Xfinity era, but he's had a couple of those starts in the second-tier NASCAR series, and he's always been a guy that I've wanted to see do well. He won the weekly series, I want to say it was last year, and that was an accomplishment that they talked extensively on Dale Jr. Download about. And it was something big for them because he never really had the chance to do that because he's been on the Cars Tour and all this other stuff. But everyone's saying, oh, well, this guy should get a full-time ride. He should be playoff eligible now that he's won. We know Sam Mayer, who had just lit up the lower series in NASCAR, is coming into that ride for the rest of the year uh, with funding. So unless JRM can somehow field a fifth team, I don't see Josh Berry being able to go full-time. What do you guys uh, think about that? And then also, should he get a waiver because he's missed a couple rounds because he wasn't racing? The waiver, absolutely. Um, you look at the things that they've given drivers for in the past. Um, outside of injury, they gave Kurt Busch a waiver when he was suspended for the domestic violence stuff years and years ago. Um I don't see why you can't give Josh Berry a waiver if he's able to find the other full-time ride that he's kind of looking for for the second half of the year. Um, you talked about Sam Mayer and the funding. I hope that Josh Berry's win kind of sets us back to hiring those more experienced late model drivers rather than bringing in all these young kids with the quote-unquote marketability because um, it just shows that you can pick up a really good, you know, established late model driver from the car store from – this, that, the other thing, and they'll go out and perform in decent equipment. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that comes in the future. But, yeah, absolutely, Barry should get a waiver. Yeah, and I think that's another problem with the playoffs. I'll get into that another time, but it's just one of the many reasons why I don't like the playoffs is that it just opens a can of worms and people are like, oh, he shouldn't get a waiver. And it's like it's like that the, it's they set a precedent when they did the Kurt Busch thing and the Kyle Busch thing and all that kind of stuff, and now it's like, they're just doing what they do best is being consistently inconsistent. I think the biggest thing when it comes to a waiver is you don't need one uh, at all. You know, say in the trucks and Xfinity, you would have to finish in the top 20 in points to get in like you do and top 30 for cup. But if you win a race in any of those series and you can meet that, doesn't matter how many races you've raced, if for some reason you only race one race, you win it, and that is enough to propel you into 20th in points, I think you should be eligible to run those last seven races in those series or the last 10 in cup. Um, I think that would fix NASCAR's problems. I would think it would fix all these debates that we're having. And it would be able to see guys like this go into the playoffs and, and have a good playoff run. This um, is probably you're call it winning your end, just, just do it. All the way. Yeah, I'll probably disagree on that because I feel like it still doesn't solve the problem of saying 
the champion misses 11 races or whatever happened in 2015, you know, it, it still presents a load of legitimacy issues. But that being said, I, it's, it's a shame for the drivers that do get affected by this stuff because I don't, I don't like how they, they're pretty much holding the driver's season in their hands like that. They're like, Oh yeah, you get to race. You don't, you know, so what, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't line up for me, if that makes sense. I think that if you're going to give someone a waiver, then you should give everyone a waiver and vice versa. If you're not giving this guy one, this guy shouldn't get one either. It's it's a whole can of worms that comes up as a result of this. Yeah, yeah. And how many times when they implemented the playoffs, let's say in the Cup Series, let's go from 2014, from 14 to, I mean, really 2018, did we hear, win and you're in, win and you're in. Well, now all of a sudden – this guy's won, and he's not in. And so I think of the fans that have joined right around that time that NASCAR was looking for with this big change that they did. Well, now they're they're going to be super confused as to why Josh Berry might not make the playoffs or, you know, whatever the the situation may be. Um, like you said, there's there's way too many gray areas. There's, there's way mm-hmm. too much hassle here. Um, yeah. I think, like Nate said, if you give one person a waiver, you just give everyone a waiver. Just let it be across the board. Yeah, I think that's just a problem with the win and in system because I know that if it's, say, top 20 in points or whatever, or top 16 in points or top 12 in points, then you never – there's no there's no debating. It's kind of just cut and dry. I think the win and in system just – it doesn't – it's not cut and dry. Yeah, and for me, I, I think that what you just said, that keeping the top whatever in would be a – a good idea to do it but really with the playoffs as far as i'm concerned it's it's sort of illegitimate so anything should be able to go um i'd love to see a chase system again but we have you know let's lock in the top 10 in points in each series and then anyone who wins a race during the regular season doesn't matter if they run all the races or not can get locked in they just won't have any playoff points but but uh but the five that they won um uh, I, I don't know. I think that would be a very good way to do it and just run the last 10 races or seven in the lower series for cumulative points and, and call it a day. But, I mean, this is something that we could talk about every single time that we discuss NASCAR because I think the three of us, especially being kind of old school fans, don't really like the playoffs. So, um, I guess let's go ahead and kind of move on to our main topics for today and I'll start off by continuing with this junior motorsports train and I want to talk about um kind of the conversation that Dale Jr. had with Marcus Smith a couple weeks ago um and kind of what fans may or may not like about their direction of going and 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 how we could use their direction in other areas so just to start off, I've seen a lot of debate about Junior Motorsports to Cup, and Dale Jr., of course, says it's not out of the question. My question to you guys is, with the current system with charters, A, do you think it's feasible, and B, would you even want to see JRM in the Cup Series? I would love to see JRM in the Cup Series because I think it's another big-name team, big-name owner, all that kind of stuff. Um if you're having guys like Pitbull, Michael Jordan, then why not have Dale Jr. in there too? The only thing that's confusing is that with Rick Hendrick investing in JRM, that's where 
you can kind of debate about, say, would Rick Hendrick have to give up his investment in the team to make JRM Cup eligible, which I'm sure Rick Hendrick's investing a huge amount into that team. It makes me wonder how much they would be able to sustain themselves as a Cup team without that investment. Yeah, I agree with you. I see both sides of this coin. I'd love to see JRM go to Cup because it's Dale Jr., um, I can't think of anything better than seeing NASCAR's most popular driver for almost 20 years consecutively owning his own team. Um, I couldn't even think about the kind of fan base that he'd acquire. Um, at the same time, like you said with the Hendrick deal, I mean, JRM is basically just a feeder for Rick Hendrick um, and these other Chevy teams. So I don't, I don't know how well that would work out. Um, I'd like to see him run Xfinity at least a couple more years, probably closer to five more years just to kind of run that horse to its end and see kind of where that takes them. Um, or if they get to a point where the charters, either the system a either goes away or B become a little bit more available on a consistent basis um, for JRM to hop into the cup. And even at that, I don't know that I'd want to see JRM field any more than one or two cars. Yeah. I think it's just a matter of, um, a matter of what JRM you want to see. Like, do you want them to go to cup or do you want them to do well? Because with Rick Hendrick having to pull out, that might mean that the JRM we get might not be the same level that we're used to seeing in that. So I would only want them in cup if they're able to run on a good budget. Yeah. And I don't think sponsorship will be an issue. I think like you saw how much sponsorship Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin brought in uh, with the 2311 um, I think it would be more of a competition issue. Um, we've kind of even talked about it here today that 2311 is kind of just a almost like a stepping stone for JGR. Not that they're going to behave like that in the long term, but that's going to be basically a fifth JGR car. And I wouldn't expect JRM with Hendrick to be any different where that would kind of be a fifth Hendrick car or a sixth Hendrick car or what have you to where Hendrick's kind of helping decide what goes into that and they're just kind of this little feeder for him to get guys ready for, for the nine or the 24. Right. Well, for me, like you've said, they're basically just Hendrick light. Um, so it would be, uh, first and foremost, a conflict of interest to have Rick Hendrick owning two NASCAR teams, which we know is not a, not a thing, um, for the cup series. It's not really allowed. Denny Hamlin's getting around it because he's a driver and it's not really a fifth JGR team. My biggest thing is I don't think they do good just because JRM is really not that good of an Xfinity team because JGR's Xfinity team is there and they're really hit or miss. They're either really good one year with all teams or they're really not good with most of their teams with Justin Algar kind of being the person that says, eh, I'm probably going to win a couple races a year. But even he's had winless um, seasons. So when it comes to Cup, we have the charter system, which makes any of these moves hard. And I think with if, if you eliminate Rick Ware and he sells all of his charters, I think he's only really got three. So for me, I'd rather see those charters go to different teams. I would I would like to see the 45 car maybe show up with 2311 uh, as them expanding and and I'd like to see a team like Live Fast 
own a charter. I'm not sure if they own or lease the one that they're doing right now or if they even have a charter to begin with. Um, a team like Gaunt Brothers, I think, deserves a charter uh, for, for their comp, you know, contribution to the sport, though they've really only done one full season so far. Um, I just I don't think that it would be anything but a waste uh, of resources for that Xfinity team because if they put any resources into the Cup team, it's going to devalue that Xfinity team. So I just think... There's no good reason unless JRM Xfinity shuts down for them to go to Cup. And that's not good for the series because they're one of the staple series, uh, four cars in that series. But I just think that sometimes the fans think they know what they want, but they don't really think about the repercussions of everything when one of these things happen. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely with that. Um the the charter system's a whole i mean that's a whole box that we can unravel on in and of itself um but i think yeah it does bring a whole lot of complications um to where who gets what and how many they're allowed um i i like i said i'm really on the edge about jrm to cup yeah i don't know what to decide part of me wants them to cup part of me doesn't and i think the biggest repercussion like you guys said is how it would hurt Xfinity because they're already a series that needs they're a very tough heavy series there's a lot of cars that are good but there's only 5 or 10 cars that are title contenders and if you take away 3 or 4 of them right off the bat like that then it becomes pretty much a, a JGR versus whoever's in the Penske 22 series and I don't, I don't know if I want that yeah and that's something that we've seen kind of over the last couple of years we've lost Roush completely they used to have two to three competitive cars. We've lost RCR nearly completely. They really only have one full-time car. When they used to have three that were championship contenders most of the time. And, you know, if we lose JRM, then it's really, like you said, three JGR cars, a star car, and Pinsky with the 22 rolling well, every and week. The, the and, and that's not good. Yes and no. I think that they still need some growing before I'd give them the accolade. Um, Justin Haley is their most stable asset right now, and I hate to say that because I am such a big uh, fan of A.J. Allmendinger, and really the 10 cars just kind of been there. We saw Elliot Sadler drive it for a bit, and then Ross Chastain last year wrecked it just as much as you finished well. So they've got a little bit more growing to do before I say that they're a staple of the expanded series. Yeah, and what's to say they don't jump up to Cup 2? Right, they are looking at that, and that's yeah. something that I didn't think about. Um, now, I don't know uh, how they do it. Like I said earlier, there's there's probably only three or four charters that are even up for, for sale uh, at the end of this season at best. So... Um, seeing the 16 car being a full-time would be another one of those teams that would kind of devalue its Xfinity program because the more effort you put into Cup, it's a lot more money that goes into a singular Cup race than it is a singular Xfinity race. So any resources that they put over there is going to drain whatever resources that they have in Xfinity. So I I don't know. It's, it's a 
it's a touchy situation and we could all live in a, a dream world where everything is great and we're going to tracks like Wilkesboro and Rockingham and we don't have a playoff system and and we've got JRM and, and Colleague and Cup, but we're just not in that real world right now and, and I think it's 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 time for fans to quit begging for stuff that's not real really realistic and I'll and I'll say that as a probably a hot take. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. agree. Um, I think the bigger conversation here is, I mean, the charter system in and of itself. Why is Rick Ware getting four charters when he's proven over the past four years that he can, you know, just kind of go out and collect a paycheck and not produce competitive cars? Um, I think without the charter system here, this is a different conversation. Yeah, I guess I feel like part of their business plan is that we can snap up all these charters and then. Once teams that are big, like say 2311 or Colleg or whatever, they want to go to Cup and expand, then they sell them for a higher price. It's almost like they're flipping charters. And I I don't agree with that. I think that's another thing. I, I don't think that – well, I guess this happened with starting part two, but it's just I don't agree with the fact that people are there to do that. I want people that are here to race, and that's it. Even Yeah, even with starting parks, you had to be competitive enough to make the race. Right. To then earn your right to, you know, start the race, run 12 laps and pull off. Um, and I think without the charter system here, I think we've already would have seen a JRM car in the Cup Series, at least at the plate tracks or a couple short tracks here and there. Um, but I think this charter system is really hurting any new teams that want to come in because that's just an added expense right over your head. You don't just have to worry about building a fast car. Now you've got to put an extra five, six, seven million dollars on it just to be able to go in and say, okay, well, I'm in the Cup Series. I can compete for this. Well, not only that, but the uncharted teams don't get as much money as the charter teams do. And I realize why they did it. Uh, the RTA, Rob Kaufman, and those guys, they wanted to be like, hey, we're going to make the show every week so that we can sell sponsors, so that we don't go into the deal like we had previously where we might not make the race if we're not a top 35 in points team. To me, I really don't think that should have been a rule myself but um we're, we're to a point where i think the charters have run their course and nascar could have gotten ahead of this by adding two charters every five ish years until we got to 40 so that would have been 10 years so we would have already had two charters for two full-time teams that had raced at least three years full-time so would have automatically got a charter last after last season and they would have done it again in 2025 and i think we could have 40 competitive cup cars that will always automatically race and expand the field back to 43 cars and they just kind of blew the chance to grow the sport because the charters are good for the teams they make the teams more money but it disincentivizes anyone to come in and make a new team and the only reason that we got 2311 is because a, another team, LFR, had to shut down because they c- couldn't survive anymore after what I'll say uh, is due to coronavirus pandemic coming in because I feel like they were on the upswing and they would have been what 2311 is going to be for Toyota moving forward. Um, but like I said, the only reason that we have these teams is because of specific circumstances and it would have been more inviting to guarantee people these charters further along the line and that's just my opinion on it 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with that, and I see why they did it. Um, but now, I mean, we're kind of at the opposite crossroad here, where if that is keeping JRM out of cup, well, I mean, Dale Jr. wouldn't have had trouble gaining sponsors. Um, even Justin Marks, I don't feel like, would have had a huge deal with it. Um, but now you're kind of keeping guys out who can prove that, hey, we build competitive cars in the Xfinity Series. We have the experience of owning motorsports teams um, to let the Rick Wares go in and say, hey, we're going to run 36 races this year to their sponsors and run, you know, 36 every week. So I think it's almost in a way starting to backfire. I think we're seeing the very beginnings of that backpedaling on the charter system. Um, and I know a lot of the teams and the drivers have been very outspoken against it. The only one I haven't seen is the, the Rick Rares and the front row racing um, who are kind of benefiting from this. And I mean, let's be honest here again, it's really only the, the final 10 cars in a lineup every week that are benefiting from the charter system. Um, whereas we could be keeping out the Matt colleagues, the Dale juniors, um, the Michael Jordan, second car, what have you. Yeah, and uh, I got into a discussion with another guy on Reddit, actually, about this very topic. Um, so, there's a points battle going on where if one of the Rick Ware charters, I don't know which number it's for, finishes lower than 33rd in points, but based on the other charters, he will have done that for three years and they will automatically lose the charter. So, I had an idea for these charters to be like, let's run a full season. Anyone who's 33rd and worse that's ran full-time, that has a charter, is up for that charter being taken away by any full-time non-chartered team that finishes ahead of them at points. And I think that would be a fair system, and that would allow guys to come into the sport and do like Gaunt Brothers did last year and finish, I want to say it was 26 in points with Daniel Suarez, only having one full-time season under their belt, they would have automatically gotten the worst of those charters if they were the only car to to finish in points higher than them. And I think that that could be a good middle ground. But again, NASCAR missed the mark. That's something that should have been gone from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree completely with that. I think that's a great idea. Um, I think we will see an evolution of the charter system within the next five to ten years of NASCAR kind of saying, okay, well, this isn't working. Um, and I'm not even so sure that they're going to take Rick Ware's charter from him because Rick Ware has so much, so much money and so much pull into that. Um, I, and to be quite honest, I don't trust NASCAR a whole lot. Um, so I'm not exactly sure that may be the rule, but I mean, we've seen him go back on rules dozens of times. Sorry, Hamlin fans, but the yellow line rule last year. Yeah. Um, oh no, he won that race. <laughs> yeah, no, but <laughs> that's a different conversation. Um, but yeah, I think we will see an evolution of the charter system in the years to come. I hope we do. I mean, I don't like it as is now. It'd yeah. be like if a grocery store said, all right, well, only these 5,000 people can shop here. And then you find out that 200 of them haven't even bought anything in the last three years. Well, then why are they getting to shop here? You know? Yeah. yeah just to say that they're there pretty much. And that's yeah. kind of what Rick Ware is doing. He's just there to get a, a paycheck, and I think he knows that we all know that, and I'm going to assume that what he's doing is funding his IndyCar and IMSA ventures with NASCAR right now, and I don't blame him for that at all because it's brilliant business, but it should also not be possible, and that's not Rick Ware's fault. 
So I, I want to put some of this blame on NASCAR uh, yeah. rather than him himself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not holding Rick against anything personally, um, just because he's he's a businessman and he found out how to play the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, we're just a couple of fans uh, who are complaining about uh, our favorite sport, which is uh, more criticism than not. But a lot of fans tune in to other podcasts and listen to stuff like the Dale Jr. Download. And I want to kind of go into a couple of fan amenities that um, that came up on his uh, episode after the Bristol Dirt Race with Marcus Smith. Uh, we saw things like... Um, the 2022 race being announced as dirt. You know, we talked about that in episode nine and I think I want to move on a little bit from that, but something that happened was SMI has got an aggressive strategy to kind of go outside of the box when thinking we've got the Roval um, and we've got the failed experiments uh, really with, with Texas and Kentucky uh, and changing the bankings on each side, but they're trying. Uh, you know, we saw Big Hoss and all that stuff come in uh, with fan amenities and stuff like that. It's just going above and beyond just to try and do something more to keep the sport new and entertaining. Um, but one of the questions was uh, from Dale Jr. about an asphalt Bristol. And this is interesting because Nathan and I have talked about this um with some insider information from my dad, apparently the plan was to rip up the ass or the concrete after this race and lay down asphalt. And Junior said something about it, and he made chuckles about it. So I don't know if this is a real thing or not. Do you guys want an asphalt Bristol? Mm. Oh yeah. Like I said, I don't want to be a harsh judge on asphalt Bristol because I haven't really seen many races there, aside from. Fox having like a classic bush race there that I did see, but really, from my perspective, I really like the concrete. I think it's sort of a, it sort of makes the track unique in a sense, because I feel like the asphalt Bristol when you see clips of it, it clearly raced a little differently. I'm not sure what I would react. I think that even if it was better, I'm more of a don't fix it if it's not broken type guy. So if the concrete's putting on a good race, then just keep the concrete. It's not that hard. I'm going to look at this from more of a kind of a not necessarily a realistic standpoint, um, but just from an actual construction standpoint. Um, when they redid Daytona, and I don't know about Talladega, but when I know when they repaved Daytona, they had to take out the lights that were along the banking, and they had equipment on the top of the track holding the bulldozers and the pavers onto the pavement because otherwise they'd slide off. Um, mm -hmm. Bristol's not that far off from the steep Daytona Talladega, Talladega banking. Um, those, those big machines would absolutely slide off. And now you're talking about pulling seats out to be able to have that equipment up to hold the pavers in place. I think there's a, a big logistical issue with asphalt Bristol that people are kind of mm -hmm. overlooking. Um, there's, I, I would have never thought about that. So yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think maybe if that goes in a lot of the tracks, took a lot of seats out recently, like Daytona. They took a lot of seats out. Maybe my thought is if they rip seats out for the pavement, that they would replace it with sort of like the hospitality things, like certain tracks. Have. Charlotte has a beach in turn – or no, Kentucky has it. I think Kentucky or Charlotte has a beach in turn one. 
some tracks have bars and turn one and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like that's sort of their excuse for taking out seats is to have logistical areas for whatever they do take out. Yeah, and and that would make absolute sense, especially at a track with Bristol, who's just this kind of concrete coliseum, right, with seats all around it. It looks more like a football stadium than it does a, a NASCAR track. Um, but, I mean, from what I've talked to people who go to Bristol, the turns are kind of the, the prize seats just because of the view you can see down into the cars. So I don't know how quick NASCAR would be to give up those corner seats, um, but it's definitely a conversation that will evolve over the next year or two. Um, as we kind of see what direction they're heading, um, I yeah, think. We're, we're, yeah, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's something I I didn't think about because honestly, when I look back, I loved original concrete Bristol. I never saw asphalt Bristol. I I love Dale Jr. to death, but some of his ideas really make me want to slam my head in the wall. Like going back to the oval at Atlanta. To me, he wants to do that because he never got the race there. I can't watch an old Atlanta race and be as entertained as I as I can with a D-shaped oval. All those classic finishes happen on that that racetrack. So how can I, you know, respect the 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 opinion of Asphalt Bristol without having the information? I, for me, I can't. Old Concrete Bristol was great. What they have now is perfect. It's provided the spring race last year, which was one of the greatest races in NASCAR history, and. It's always putting on a good show because you can run top and bottom, and I love it. Um, so I don't want it to go to asphalt, and I don't know that they're going to spend that much money. Staying on the Bristol train, though, Dale Jr. also said in five years he thinks they will tear the concrete up and make that a permanent dirt race to have both races dirt. And I don't know that that would be a very good idea um, for you guys. What do you think? Because I think that takes out uh, the fifth ground jewel of the Bristol. Yeah, I don't agree with it at all. Like I don't mind dirt. I just think that we shouldn't be tearing up a good track to do that. And you're pretty much at that point. You're taking two steps back to take one step forward. I don't. I don't agree with that mentality of breaking things that aren't broken. Yeah, I'm with you. At that point, they'd be sacrificing good racing for entertaining racing. Um, I'd rather see SMI go out and build a high bank dirt track then tear up bristol something they've put all this years and money into to make it the coliseum that it is and i mean when you ask fans if they could give you you know their top two or three favorite tracks Bristol's going to be on 99 percent of those lists and i think tearing it up to put a dirt track in is like you said taking two steps back and i don't see smi taking that step backward with how much they put into bristol i mean bristol's smi's baby Oh, absolutely. And that's, I think, one of the things you said is this is one of the top three tracks that, that people think of when they think NASCAR. So it kind of bothered me and a lot of other fans that they were putting dirt on it because we were wasting the spring date at Bristol. It worked out in, in favor of entertainment, but um, SMI's got a good thing going. I doubt that they'll get rid of it. And I don't necessarily understand you know we've got a cult following with dale jr i see on twitter that fans are like yeah let's get on board let's do this and da 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 um but you said something about building another track i doubt that we see another track built in any time soon just because of the state of not only the you know nation slash global economy but the state of nascar as a sport's becoming 
more niche and like it used to be. And I don't, I don't think we're going to be building a new stadium slash racetrack other than reconfiguring one or maybe a street race in the future. Yeah. And I agree with that. Um, but I, I, I'd still rather see SMI take those steps rather than dig up Bristol. And even if it's something that where they go out and buy, um, say they go out and buy US 36 that the World Outlaws races on. Um, I know they still own the Charlotte dirt track and I think the Texas dirt track as well. Um, but maybe they didn't go out and buy a high bank dirt track and host that as a NASCAR race rather than, like you said, taking away a Bristol date. Because I don't see the dirt going away for. I mean, at least the foreseeable future, especially if next next year goes well. Um, I absolutely think they'll try to keep at least one dirt race in the schedule, but I'd like to see them go somewhere else rather than taking away a, a date from one of the best tracks on the circuit. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at this point, which is really sad to me because knowing NASCAR, they're prone to doing this a lot. Look at what they did to my race, the Firefighter 400. They moved it to August, and attendance rates are probably going to drop because – now they put a 4th of July race in a point where not many people have time off. So I think it's just – it's par for the course at this point to expect NASCAR to make the wrong decision. Well, the only wrong decision that I can think of is them adding more dirt tracks to the schedule. So I don't know that we'll, we'll see that. Um, Marcus Smith even said that he doesn't want to see that. Not that it's their baby, but just – that they don't need more than one because it would devalue and and they can do more unique stuff at more unique venues um, that way that the schedule is more diverse rather than let's just take the same thing and copy it over and over and over. And I know we've discussed that is kind of the case with the boom of the 1.5 milers. Well, it's kind of what's going on, in my opinion, with the road courses now. Um, so... A question that I had that's kind of similar to this conversation is we see Auto Club reconfiguring. People are talking about let's reconfigure Chicago into a three-quarter mile similarly shaped short track. Let's reconfigure Kentucky into a short track so that it can come back on the schedule. Do you guys think that we will overdo short tracks on the schedule if we keep going in that direction? Ooh, man, this is a really tough one for me because I love short tracks. But that being said, I kind of like a little bit of a 50-50 split between the mile-and-a-half tracks that kind of are there to showcase the cars and the team's prowess versus short tracks that are there to see what driver does better. Um, I don't want too much of one or the other because we've already had too many mile-and-a-half tracks. I don't think we've ever experienced too many short tracks and I'm just going to speak live, but I, I don't think it's too much to ask for an even split from all the track types. I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out there. There are two track types that NASCAR has clung on to. Um, and it's not road courses or intermediates. It's the super speedways and the short tracks. And NASCAR has already kind of doubled down on this 550 horsepower, the super high downforce, um, They've kind of hinted to for towards this next generation car, and I don't see them backing away from that anytime soon. And from my perspective, the best mile and a half racing came with the super high downforce, super low or super high horsepower, super low downforce when guys would really have to wheel it around the corners and carry that speed. 
Um, and I don't see him doing that anymore. I see him trying to pack the cars as close together to replicate the Talladega and the, the Daytona. Um, I, I don't think they could have too many short tracks so long as the short tracks are um, different from each other. I don't want to see him go to Bristol six, seven times a year, nor do I want to see him hit six, seven different Martinsvilles. Um, but I'd love to see tracks like Slinger Speedway or um, Stafford or you know, what have you, South Boston, different types of short tracks thrown in there because I feel like that provides a different level of entertainment um, and a different expertise for all the drivers. Most of the NASCAR drivers, even with the dirt guys, have still grown up racing short tracks. I mean, World of Outlaws rarely races on tracks half mile or bigger. Um, so even if you throw those sprint guys in there, they're still racing short tracks. Um, so I feel like that would give us a bigger talent spread and not put so much on the equipment you know, with the asterisks on the point finishes um, and more into the driver's hands. I'd love to see him go to, you know, 25 different short tracks in the year. Um, so long as we're not racing at the same type of short track over and over and over again, kind of like we did with the mile and a half with the D ovals and the tri ovals. Well, Colton, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. I think um, short track racing will get boring if we have too much of it. Just like I think there's too many road courses on the schedule uh this season uh specifically the fact that we're gonna have three different robles and i don't think that the robles put on a good show other than the fact that the charlotte robles just been basically a shit show so i love road course racing and i'd love to go to four or five real road courses and add the roble in there we call it a day um but when it comes to short track racing that's not what i think of when i think of nascar and i'm gonna pull a you know a richard petty versus dirt tracks on this we kind of got off of short tracks and we went to big tracks to show the speed and i realize what you're saying with the six or uh, the 550 horsepower package and all that but i would rather see more speedway racing than short tracks and that's coming from someone who loves short track racing only because i think the short tracks are special now because we only have really six of them and if it were up to me, we would get Kentucky and Chicagoland back on the schedule. Auto Club would be staying as is, and we would have all these unique racetracks. Maybe another Speedway, like a Rockingham or something, comes back. And we just shorten the schedule to one race per venue. That way we can just have unique racetracks across the country of different sizes. Because if you look at... It, at one mile ovals like Phoenix and Dover and New Hampshire, they're all vastly different. Well, you can throw Pikes Peak International in there, and it's vastly different than all three of them. And I'd love to see the, the schedule just be more diverse. I don't think focusing on short tracks would be a good idea because you lose that NASCAR identity of speed of this is 200-mile-an-hour racing. We don't get to 200-mile-an-hour on short tracks, and that – and and. I love short track racing. I'm not a fan of majority tra short track racing. I'd rather have more speedways. That's a bold opinion. I'm definitely going to disagree with you with that, with a guy, as a guy who goes to a lot of short track races. Um, one of the best things I like about going to Colorado, Colorado National Speedway, you know, a dozen times a year is seeing those rivalries unfold on a short track. You know, the guy in, that you're, that you may have beef with ain't that far ahead of you. You can, fairly easily catch them and go get them in the bumper. Um, and that's kind of what NASCAR grew on in the 90s 
was that you know the the Earnhardt Gordon the you know the rattle his cage at the Bristol, um, and now with the one point five miles especially and like I said the package plays a huge role into my opinion here is because we're not going to get back to that really good mile and a half racing um, that I, we're used I disagree. To I disagree. I think the next gen car not having enough side force and removing the downforce to be mechanical grip by using downforce under the car than on the top of the car. I I can almost guarantee you, you'll have more fun with Speedway races next year and beyond than you have since the early Gen 4 races. And, and, oh boy. I, and I will, I will put money down on it that I don't, I, I don't, I don't think you'll be disappointed with the next gen car just based off the very little testing that I've seen. Well, we'll, we'll hop it. We'll hop in the DMS and we'll get money down somewhere. I don't yeah. agree with you. I haven't watched a whole lot of the testing of the next gen car. Um, but I'd, I'd still much rather see the pack racing at the Talladega and then short tracks in between. I'm not saying let's get rid of intermediates, mile and halves altogether. I'm saying let's throw in four more short tracks, six more short tracks, and give them a single date. Ooh, that's a good idea. And I think a part of the reason why I'm so sort of apprehensive on the next-gen car is that I try not to get my hopes up with anything NASCAR-related because I know that most of the time I'm disappointed. So, But the one thing I did like is how much they had to lift in the corner. I just don't know. It almost feels like a slower version of the Gen 4, that makes sense. Like it's almost like in slow motion because the straightaway speed looked a lot slower than the, what we're used to growing up. So it's almost our best hope is a slow version of the gen four. Well, I think it's going to require a lot more driver input. And then really once we get into the true next gen with a motor built around the horsepower, I feel like throttle control will be there. And I think the cars will get a little bit faster. Um, Of course, only time will tell. And I'm, I'm trying to be uh, a fortune teller over here telling you guys that it's only going to get better. But, I mean, that's truly what I believe. And um, that's something that, you know, I look back on the COTs and a, a lot of people hated that era. But that era was so good on mile-and-a-half tracks. Oh, yeah. They they had passing all over the place. They could run up top, down bottom. They had 900 horsepower and a lot of downforce. So, it's different than where the direction of the Gen 6 has gone. And I think that you guys listening and Colton, I think that you dislike Speedway Racing because NASCAR nerfed it. If we still had the horsepower and stuff, it'd still be the best racing in the series. And I will die on that hill. And I'll die on the opposite hill. I wasn't a huge fan of intermediates even growing up, to be honest with you. This is a fun debate, isn't it? (laughs) I would... As, as a late model guy and as, as a guy who goes to my local short track um, almost weekly throughout the summer, I'm, I'm telling you guys that's where the – I mean, I'm not saying the racing is going to be a hell of a lot better, but NASCAR's had this big push for entertainment, and that's where the entertainment is going to come from. And, and the, I don't necessarily disagree balance. with you there, but my, my thing is NASCAR has always been – since the boom, the speedway stuff. So for me, I, I, I'm going to sit here and re- I would rather watch the sensation of speed than cars that are more lethargic on short tracks than if I go to an asphalt late model or super late model race. Because what you're watching is more catered specifically to that track type and it puts on a fantastic show. It's no different than what we were talking about with the dirt racing. 
I would rather watch a 35 lap World of Outlaws Sprint Car Series race at a dirt track than I did the Cup Series racing there. So I don't know. Speedway racing is just where I feel NASCAR belongs and I'm not going to say that I'm not going to get excited for more short tracks, but you know, to, to go off these big ovals, it, it breaks my heart as a fan. Yeah. I like the point you made about the, the cars catered for that racing. Um, and honestly, that's a good point. I think we can all agree on taking more dates away from tracks that already have two and giving it Absolutely. to different types rather than go to the same 13 tracks twice and then filling in from there. Um, I'd rather see 36 different tracks on the schedule than I would 15 with two dates apiece. Absolutely. And I think that's where three of us can agree with probably the rest of the series uh, fans. Because the more the merrier, you can get into more markets. Uh, Obviously, road courses are going to be the easiest way to get into new markets uh, because there's more road courses than I think can hold NASCAR than ovals. But... um, and then they're talking about street courses and stuff. Um, but to move on uh, from this subject that we've been heated in debate, um, something that's interesting with fan involvement that um, is going on in all of sports is the necessity to make stadiums the place to be. And um, I can say uh, myself with personal experience, uh, the battery, which is uh, – a community that sprung up around the Braves Stadium in Atlanta um, has restaurants, shops, bars, and apartments, as well as the NBC slash Comcast um, office building and a hotel adjacent to the stadium that you can see in into the st- stadium and watch games from your room at. So where we're going with everything is trying to have a a community centered around an entertainment site. And I say that to say that SMI is talking about contracting with the Nashville Fairgrounds Fair Board. And I don't know if you guys have been kind of in on what's going on in Nashville, but they are becoming even more of an entertainment center than they already are. Um, with adding MLS amongst other things like a street course with IndyCar and NASCAR is going hard for this market as well. Um, so I guess let's let's talk about that. Yeah, I think I agree with the entertainment prospect. It's a huge opportunity for the sport to grow. And the more you think about it, we don't have many tracks like that that are sort of the centerpiece of an entire community. Maybe Charlotte, but Charlotte's a racing town already, so I guess if you go to Daytona, for example, you can see that pretty much the whole town revolves around that track. If it isn't for that track, the area between the track and the beach is almost non-existent, so this is something interesting. I'd be very curious to see what, what it would look like if, say, an entire community in Nashville is built around a racetrack. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think this is a great direction to go go in for NASCAR um, and for motorsports in general. Um, when I went down to Talladega in 2019, I kind of asked a few of my buddies what what to expect, where to go, what to do while I'm down there. And, I mean, it's, it's really off the beaten path 
Um, I mean, it's right close to the interstate, but I mean, the closest town is, I mean, really Pell City. Um, and so everyone was like, oh, you got to go eat at this restaurant in Pell City or this restaurant in Birmingham. I'd really like to be able to go to a track and someone say, hey, this this Euros, even a, a cart or a truck or a stand, this Euro stand out here, this this burger shack right here um, makes some great stuff. Kind of like we see with the Martinsville hot dogs, right? Um, I'd love to see those amenities get closer to the track and kind of get the whole NASCAR and motorsports community involved in one central location rather than as soon as track activities are done, everyone kind of spreads out and goes, you know, 20 miles into the nearest city. Um, I'd love to see a casino, restaurants, like you mentioned, hotels, where everyone can kind of be together and stay close to the track and share the same experiences that they've had um, while still getting the really good amenities and having stuff to do other than sitting at the camper playing cards all day yeah and the biggest thing i think that is why some of these racetracks have failed um is not only are they out in the middle of nowhere they've not really tried to build themselves outward and i think where nascar has a really good footprint at most of these tracks where they can build out we we see dover's got a casino out of it they built one at, at Kansas and it started to bloom into more commercial and, and other stuff uh, areas around that track and it's kind of a destination site. Um, looking at what's already in Nashville, it's a destination site. People vacation there. Um, they're just adding and kind of stirring to this already entertainment centric pot. I think it should be a direction that NASCAR and SMI need to go for in their own properties. We know that Atlanta Motor Speedway is planning to build a casino, is planning to put a theme park there, planning to renovate the track, all of this stuff. But if you can convince local governments to make these places event centers, they're going to bring commerce into those local communities and make us as NASCAR fans have a better experience during the weekend. Because like you said, if you go to Talladega, I'm lucky that I live within driving distance from there because there's not anything to do there. And if we build hotels, hotels can now be closer to the track. Maybe we get cheaper hotels outside of that instant area of the track. And then you've also got to think, these are big venues. They can be used for concerts. They can be used for stuff like color and mud runs. They can be used for car shows. They can be used for local drifting events. Um, I'm going to Atlanta Motor Speedway this weekend to see motocross. They're going to have American Flat Track in a couple weeks. They're going to have next weekend Monster Jam. Um, they've got concerts that they do there. They do Christmas lights. They do all this stuff. And I feel like we're not, as a sport, thinking about how we could use each of these areas as a multi-purpose area to bring in fans to to sport because if you show up and say whoa i'm going to a concert in the middle of the indy 500 at the state snake pit and there's cars buzzing around maybe you get interested in car racing too yeah i agree and make these facilities year round um like the ams like the las vegas motor speedway um to where people will see the track outside of the the racing aspect of it and become interested um i can't tell you how many people have asked me i live in cheyenne wyoming um, which we host the world's largest outdoor rodeo that have come to visit me driven by the stadium and said, wow, what is that? 
you know, oh, that's a rodeo stadium. Wow, I'd like to go see something there. Just because it's so big, it's so it's so cool. You know, you get people out there for a concert. You get people out there for even vacationing at the theme park or what have you out there. They go eat at the restaurant. Now they know it's there, and they can look out for it. Oh, hey, IndyCar's coming this weekend. NASCAR com- is coming this weekend. Tickets aren't that expensive. Do you want to go? Um, that's kind of how you start to draw in more new fans. Um, even like Nate, we mentioned the last time I was on here, um, Colorado national speedways right off the interstate. You see it if you drive North of Denver. Um, so it's already in the back of your mind, you know, where that racetrack's at. Yeah, exactly. I agree wholeheartedly with that idea is that there needs to be a group of people that grow up like, Hey, hey, look, the racetrack's down the road. You know, that's having it be the entire the entire cornerstone of a community is huge because you're going to get a whole generation of people that grow up there and think the same thing. And yeah. that that's something that I didn't even think of. I mean, you get the community involved, then they're not going to hate racing. And maybe when they move to a new place, they're not going to be one of those Karens that say, oh, there's a racetrack that we totally didn't know we were moving next to. We should shut it down. It's too loud on Saturday nights. Um, so... Getting people involved in stuff like that, um, I mean, you're creating jobs as well. I mean, sure, these big events only happen a couple of times a year, or um, maybe there's only f- 15 concerts during the year and two race weekends, So, but that's still 17 weekends that that you've got high school kids being able to go get extra money on the side or, or other people with part-time jobs. Um You've got cleanup crews and stuff like that, so you're bringing a lot of economy into the, or into the, a lot of money into the local economy. So, the only thing that I see here is growth, and then you're adding interest into the sport that the main purpose of the facility is in. So I don't know if there's just been a disconnect with track CEOs of these these track presidents or or whatever their titles are. Um, with the fact that, that they can host all this stuff or if they're just saying we take in the enough TV money, that's, that's good enough. Let's be lazy the rest of the year. Yeah. 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 And there, there has to be an effort put in to do more than just grab the TV money. And I think the sport is starting to see that, um, you know, people, we can watch really good coverage on TV when it's not with Fox. Um, and so, you know, there, there's other markets that people can go to now. You got to do more to bring them to the track. Yeah, and even, uh, I don't know, if somebody stumbles across this podcast, maybe they hear just how passionate we are, we bring them in. So um, NASCAR's got to look at, at stuff like that with content creators like us as well uh, because we really need to be doing whatever we can to try and restart another boom like we had in the 2000s because – we're never going to get to that high again, but I think we can get damn close if we try. Um, but I can't, I guess moving on, uh, we, we all want bright futures for NASCAR and motorsports in general. Um, but it's been a really good discussion uh, for this episode so far. So let's move on to the more immediate future. Um, I heard that you watched your first Formula One race Uh this past race in Bahrain, Colton. So uh, are you excited for F1 in Emola this weekend? Oh, man, I am more than excited. Um, that Bahrain race, I grew up 
I'd watch a Formula One race here and there. Um, and I'd kind of keep up on like Monaco and, and the bigger races. Um, but man, I didn't know that the racing was that good late in the race. And granted, it could have just been a really good race. Um, but I always thought a Formula One is kind of wherever you start, the guys might pick up one or two spots and then on from there, they kind of stay the same. That was that was great race, and I really liked it. And I was talking with people on Twitter about it, typing my opinions out. Um, so I'm super stoked for this next weekend. I'd recommend yeah. watching qualifying too, because you can ask Nathan. Saturday is a little bit more stressful than Sunday sometimes. Yeah, I think Imola especially is a really big Saturday track because it's very narrow. There's not a lot of places to complete a pass. So I think the race in general, provided if it rains or not, it's probably going to be won on Saturday. At least the majority of the battle will because – it's such a track position centric race. If you go back in history, it's almost impossible to overtake there. So really qualifying is going to be very, very important, probably more so than it was in Bahrain because Bahrain is usually one of those tracks where you can make up positions. But here, if you look at last year, Bodus and Verstappen, he had a damaged car and Verstappen couldn't get around him for lap after lap after lap. And, Seeing that play out makes you think, you know, to prevent all these problems, you have to qualify as well as you can. Yeah, and that race wasn't nearly as entertaining as I thought it would be last year, probably because, like always, rose-colored glasses. Um, I love Imola, Imola because it's a classic track, and it's something that we missed for so long. Uh, but I'm glad it's back. Um, the biggest thing is there. There's been a talk this this week with track limits. Uh, we actually spent about 20 minutes discussing this in episode nine, but we had a lot of problems with our recording not really working. Uh, so sad to say, you guys didn't hear it. Uh, we we went on uh, uh, pretty much against the stewards uh, for about 20 minutes on track limits. Uh, but George Russell says um, this week that we've got to we've got to make it standard and a lot of people are saying let's just hold the white line true um so do you think we'll see any issues with track limits um i don't think emma is really a place that we're gonna have that problem yeah i don't think i don't envision it happening because there's a lot of gravel traps and all that kind of stuff because as you said it's an old school track and there aren't many paved runoff areas so i think it's not going to be as big of an issue now, but I'm hoping they can at least decide on something so that by the next modern track they go to, they have a rule sorted out. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a big, I'm oh, a big fan. From the F1 I've seen, um, I noticed Lewis Hamilton is really good about exploiting those. Um, you know, he exceeded the track however many laps, and then when it came down to it, the steward said, hey, no more. Um, that's when he kind of pinched Verstappen and kind of almost forced him off. Um, so I think a, that goes credit to Lewis Hamilton, but B, I understand why the tracks have these huge asphalt runoff areas. Um, but I'm a big fan of, if you want there to be no cars below or above this certain point, you'd put a natural barrier in there, whether that be a wall, whether that be grass or gravel, what have you. I mean, race car drivers are selfish and they're going to take as much as they can until you really put your foot down. And that's kind of what gets these stewards in the gray area. Um, and, and we've seen it with NASCAR with the yellow line in the past, but I think if they really wanted to 
get rid of this gray area, they'd either say, hey, as soon as your left sides or your right sides go over this line, you know, to a point, then you're disqualified or you're penalized. Um, But until then, I mean, I think we're still going to continue to see these track limits become a factor. Let's just put the turtles in like NASCAR's done. Yeah. Oh, they got sausage curves there. Yeah. Yeah. They got sausage curves there, but obviously, um, the problem being, and what I'm wondering is, they're too vague. I think that the rule should be, hey, you can only have two wheels over that white line, and anything more than that's a violation. Like it should, it shouldn't be this vague. Yeah, and uh, I'm looking forward to maybe a Max Verstappen uh, return uh, on Sunday to get what should have been his in Bahrain. Uh, but well, something interesting going on is we've got IndyCar finally four months in, uh, and we're starting not in the usual spot, but at Barber Motorsports Park. Um, I know, Colton, you haven't really gotten into uh, IndyCar, so I guess Nathan and I will try and get you to do that this weekend. Um, but what what's something, one of your favorite moments, Nathan, from previous Barber Motorsports Park races? Oh, man. Well, first of all, to go segue back to your previous note, I hope Verstappen does well, too, because... He didn't finish a single race in Italy last year. He had two engine failures and tire failures. So uh, that's going to be a big issue. But that being said, my favorite barber moment would probably be either the one race, I don't know if it was 2015 maybe, where Graham Rahal passed a bunch of cars, or 2016, which is probably the definite, where my then favorite driver one on my birthday, which is kind of cool. Like usually that doesn't happen for me at all. So I think that was what April 24th, 2016 with Simon Pagina winning that race. Um, that was kind of cool. I never, that actually capped off a, a streak where my drivers won on my birthday for two straight years. And ever since then it's never happened. So that was definitely it, I mean, the race itself wasn't memorable per se, but just the the timing of it was, it was just weird because I feel like it's probably never going to happen again. Who knows? Yeah, well, that's probably going to be a difficult one to do. Of course, I, I've stated on the podcast before being born on uh, the greatest day in racing and, and seeing the ra- those races happens about 11 years apart. Uh, so I don't know if that's going to be dissimilar with yours. Uh, but for me, it was probably uh, when Joseph Newgarden won there because it was so close to his home in Nashville. And um, I don't know. I've, I've just always really liked Joseph Newgarden. So that was kind of that was kind of the, the race for me when he won in the 67 car for that first time um, that, that I look back to as, as just fun. And it might not have even been a good race, uh, but just sometimes – who wins can alter your opinion on a race, and that one uh, may have definitely done that. Uh, but oh, for, yeah. For anyone who's looking forward to um, watching IndyCar or who likes motorsports but has never ventured into it, I'm going to say this is the year to do it because what we're going to see on Sunday is the first of many rounds, specifically on the road courses, where probably the biggest rookie class in series history, if not motorsports history, is happening. And that is Roman Grosjean, 
of Formula One fame, Scott McLaughlin of V8 Australian Supercars fame, and Jimmy the Juggernaut Johnson are going to be the rookies in IndyCar. I know you've never watched IndyCar before, but I hope that's enough for you to start on Sunday, Colton. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, be, I mean, mostly because of the names. Um, I watched an IndyCar race here or there. Um, I know the Indy 500 is a is a race that I kind of make sure I watch every single season. But other than that, I really don't watch a whole lot. I could probably name six drivers in the field. Um, but it's super cool to see guys like Jimmy Johnson and Romain Grosjean start in the field. Um, just that alone is enough to kind of get me enticed to watch. Um, and then hopefully I'll still be around to follow those storylines as the year goes on. Yeah, it's a great series. I think it's um, it's sort of picking up where NASCAR left off. If you're a racing purist, I think this series is going to appeal to you more than anything because they're very – okay, I'm not going to say simple, but for an open-wheel series, they're simple cars. They've got a lot of horsepower. They've reduced a lot of downforce. They've pretty much slashed that in half. And in the next few years, their goal is to have a thousand horsepower again. So, and then on top of that, they don't have any gimmicky rules or anything like that other than double points finale, which is still nowhere near as wacky as a playoff format. So it's, it's fun. The drivers love it. They're hard to drive. Um, There's a lot of fan access. If you're talking before COVID and you can, going to the garages for cheap. You can meet drivers and there's a lot of good personalities. It seems like everything in the sport is what you would want. If you're up that alley of saying being a racing purist, it's very, it's very easy to enjoy. That's something I found from it. Yeah. And I'll add to that um, specifically for you, Colton, knowing your background in short track racing and stuff like that, you may not find road course racing that entertaining uh, as someone who's predominantly been an Oval fan. Uh, that That's any of you guys listening or Colton specifically. But when it comes to IndyCar, of course you've got the high-speed Ovals. But the road courses are fun too. The biggest thing for me when it comes to IndyCar racing is it's raw. It is yeah. what it is. It knows what it is. And it's hard racing 100% of the time. It's like a big go-kart, pretty much. Yeah, it is. Uh-huh. It no is, power steering, no nothing. No power steering or nothing. And and the only really gimmicky thing, uh, like Nate said with the double points thing, is they've got push to pass. But, you know, everybody gets a certain amount per race, and, and it's a good tool to promote a little bit more passing than already happens. Um, but I'll, I'll say it again. IndyCar racing is raw motorsports i would implore any of you guys listening to check it out at barber's motorsports park this weekend and and i guess just get back to us if you if you liked it or not and if you're not going to watch the series please dear god watch the indy 500 because it is the greatest show in motorsports yes please 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 watch indy car like i'm begging you for those of you who don't get into it once you get in you're not going to regret it i think it's one of those series that the great part about it is that, like you said, it knows what it is. It doesn't rely on personalities. It's just no matter who's in the car, it's good racing, and that's what I like. Yeah, well, I'm excited for it. I'll definitely, uh, I'll definitely check it out. Um, I'm stoked to kind of get into more, 
more genres of racing, if you will. Um, this has been something I've wanted to do for a few years now is get into F1 and get into IndyCar. And I know a little bit about each series and kind of the very, very basic broad history of it. Um, but I'm really excited to follow a season in its entirety and see those storylines develop, see how the entire championship race um, unfolds as the year goes on. Um, and like I mentioned before, I mean, the big names in the rookie class are enticing me already. And so I figure there's not a better time to do it than 2021. Oh, yeah. And and, and you couldn't have hit the nail on the head more. Uh, 2021 is the time to start watching IndyCar. I mean, I would love to see more ovals, as I'm sure a lot of people would. I think there's only three on the schedule. I'd love to see at least eight uh, because that's kind of – what I think of with IndyCar too, but this season's going to be a hell of a ride and we're going to have a lot of big names coming in. We're going to have a lot of big names from IndyCar battling them, showing them their place basically on, Hey, you might be a good wheel man, but you're not as good as I am. And it's going to be fun to watch. There's some explosive personalities in IndyCar and it's just a great watch. Um, but moving on from IndyCar, we of course have Richmond this weekend, and um, I'm looking forward to it. It's not necessarily the best of the three short tracks that we have on the schedule now. It's been a bit of a bore in the Gen 6 era, and I'm just wondering how you guys think this is going to roll and and who you're looking for for winning in Richmond. And since we've got a new host with Colton, um, he seems to want to want us try and come from the back. Uh, that's not really too far behind me uh, because Nathan won yet again uh, at Martinsville. So it's five to two to zero now. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna go forward um, now with Colton being added to a point system of two for first place, one for second place, and zero for third place and we will pick on the inverse of each week's finishing order so with that being said colton i'll let you go up first since you are the new guy and you don't have any points uh richmond winner mtj come on wow what low-hanging fruit yeah he definitely <laughs> stole <laughs> Wow, okay, so he's going to match my points that I've accrued over the last eight weeks in one week by winning. Um, wow, man. All right, um, I guess I'll go next, and the only other person that's dominated Richmond as much as MTJ has is Keselowski. So I guess I'm going to go with Brad Keselowski because um, I don't know that I can pick anyone else who can beat the 19, so... Uh, yeah, let's go with Bad Brad. All right, let's see what's going to happen here. This is going to be an interesting one for me because those were my top two in the pecking order. So I'm I'm not going to throw a Hail Mary just yet. So I'm going to go with another favorite, and that's probably Logano. Um, Penske cars are always strong on 750s. I want to say he won the last day race there. His last year was a better car, but Logano and ended up winning the race some one way or another. So why why not Logano? It's either him or Kyle Busch when it comes to Richmond Day races, so I'm just going to go with the Penske. All right, well, we got two Penske boys. We could have made it all three if Colton did pick the lowest-hanging fruit in the series right now. 
Um, but I appreciate you coming on this week and for the foreseeable future, Colton. So we're glad you're here. Um, I'm hoping that the guys that have been listening since the beginning also are glad you're here. I guess we'll hear from them uh, at Fan Fuel Podcast One on Twitter, uh, whether or not that's the case. Um, but thanks, you guys, for listening, and we will see you again next week.